What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and hope your summer's going well. We're ending up July here talking about contracts, and I've brought back on the expert, John Apino from Contract Diagnostics to talk all about contracts. And this time, I think this is one of the coolest, most important pieces of contracts. And unfortunately, a lot of you don't do this, but it's negotiation. And so I think if you're going to listen to any of the episodes, probably this whole year, this is the one to listen to. So hopefully you can earn some more cheddar, if you will. Before we go further in the show, let's hear from today's sponsor. Because as a physician, you routinely check your patient's health. But when was the last time you checked the financial health of your practice? You could be needlessly losing money right now. Stop bleeding money, right? Let's get some actual insights about your group's financial performance with a free, no-string-attached assessment from CareCloud, a leader in medical billing solutions, EHR, and more. CareCloud has over 20 years experience helping large and small providers boost profitability and help thousands of practices optimize financial operations. Request your free revenue cycle assessment and learn more about your group's performance by visiting drpodcastnetwork.com slash carecloud. And like we always do, the link is in the description of the show you're listening to us in right now. All right, everyone. I'm excited to bring on John Apino and talk all about negotiations. John, what's up, man? Welcome back to the show. Always good to be here, man. I always have a good time hanging out. Looking forward to this discussion. We talk about this all day long. As you know, super, super important. Yep. And I'm going to start this with a little story, and then we can jump into negotiation on why I think it's important. Taylor, my wife, for those that somehow don't know, is a physician, pediatric pulmonologist. And when she was done with training, and we decided that she decided, not we, she decided that she wanted to take some time off and have a break. We just had two kids in fellowship. She was a little burnt out, just busting her butt, working really hard. And we ended up moving to Vegas, which is where my whole family lives for a couple of years. And we were really trying to see if it would work out in Vegas. And we were really hoping it would. But the way that their system was, there wasn't a lot of people who could actually provide pediatric pulmonary services, even the large institutions there. And there was a private practice there that was a six-month waiting list. It was extremely popular. All the pediatricians around would send them to this physician. And when Taylor said, hey, I'd like to work three days a week. Here's my criteria. Here's what I'd like. She went in pre-negotiating. This is my non-negotiables. And they took that and said, fine, you want to do three days a week? Well, we'll pay you three-sevenths of a pediatric pulmonary position. And the offer was like, $75,000, something just obscenely low and was kind of expecting that it was because it was a female physician that that was the case. And she came back and was a hard ass. No, I'm negotiating this. I'm negotiating that. I'm negotiating this. And if you don't like it, I'll find something else. At the end of the day, they couldn't come to mutual ground because it was absurd. Some of the stuff that he was requesting or, or wanting to do, but she was able to negotiate. And while I would like to say, I took a little credit in helping her negotiate. She did it all on her own. She was a hard ass and knew what her worth was and knew how to do it all. But a lot of people aren't that way. And I'm not just saying females. I mean, any physician, a lot of people aren't that way. They feel awkward or it's uncomfortable or they don't even know who to talk to if they wanted to negotiate. So I I want to give that little carrot of a story to go. I understand that my wife is a badass and that I definitely swung out of the park on this one and definitely married up, if you will. But with a lot of people, negotiation feels awkward. Negotiation is tough or it's something they've never done other than negotiating with their toddler 
which we all lose that battle. When do they ask? Who do they talk to? How does negotiation work? Whether it's, hey, I've been working at this hospital for a long time or, hey, I'm, I'm trying to, to get a new job and I'm negotiating like how Taylor was. It definitely can be something that causes a lot of anxiety with people. There is no formal training and we even get called in to give a talk and in 40 minutes, we download everything they need to know about the process and the contract and the negotiation in 40 minutes, which isn't, of course, enough time to get through everything. And there's also a skill involved, you know. I always start off by telling everybody that the negotiations or clarifications or due diligence, if you want to call it, I always say, look at it as not someone's going to win and someone's going to lose. You know, now you may get what you want or you may not get what you want, but I don't look at it as a winner loser kind of thing. I don't want someone to think that they failed or they lost if they were unable to get something in the contract. And some are non-negotiable and we'll talk about that coming up. But I always look at it as, for the most part, the same goals. Each party has the same goals. It's get the physician there, get them there at least for a little while, if not long-term. It's the physician wants to make a living to support their family. The employer wants to have a proper business and company. Physician wants to you know spend time in the community and help a lot of patients. The employer has a good established hole in the community and they have patients that need help. So everyone has the same goals. It's just how do you fit the physician's needs, wants, and desires around schedule, benefits, compensation, et cetera, and what the employer is willing and able to do. So, you know, I look at it as not this, it's me versus you. It's someone's going to win, someone's going to lose. It's how do we negotiate or how do we clarify? How do I understand the expectations more clear to make sure that I know what I'm getting into? And sometimes that means that you get everything you want. Sometimes it means you don't. But when to start the process? I think it all begins with a site visit or maybe even a letter of intent, if that's a part of the process. When you go on a site visit, and thank goodness people are going on site visits now this summer, instead of last year during COVID, people were doing Zoom calls, and what a challenge those things would be, I could imagine. But I believe that it starts on the site visit, so asking a lot of questions as far as, why is the position open? If it's open because someone's leaving, I think it's a great idea to see if you can contact that individual. And if the employer won't provide you the information of the individual, that could be something of a red flag. Maybe they're busy. They're booking six months out to your point earlier in Vegas, and maybe that's the reason. So you should jump in. Maybe they're expanding and they have a new outreach clinic, and maybe that's going to be part of your responsibilities and you need to know that. So I think first, the whole thing starts with the site visit and understanding and asking good questions, but not talking about compensation. I don't like it when the physicians get into compensation on the site visit, because I would hate for the physician to say, I'm looking to have X or I'm seeing Y in other offers. And then they receive that and maybe they contact a company like Contract Diagnostics and we think that what they're being offered is less than par. But the employers, under the assumption, that's what the physician wanted. So they maybe don't want to change it. So I think the whole thing starts with the site visit, but not discussing formalities as far as like the contract. But I think setting expectations as far as what are you looking to get out of me and what's the schedule look like, but not discussing the actual contract details. And then as far as to take it a step further, it might be depending on the letter of intent, if the employer is going to give one of those, I feel that negotiating begins with the letter of intent. So don't sign letter of intents and then send us the contract to negotiate the contract. Let's talk about the letter of intent. Make sure that you're comfortable with everything on the letter of intent. In our business, we see about 22% of deals that have letter of intents associated with them. So the employer will offer a letter of intent. Physician will say, I agree, or I want to change the financials, right? Here's a salary. Here's the bonus. Here's how much vacation time you have. Maybe a CME dollar amount. They might be detailed with restrictive covenant language or with malpractice. But I think that's where the negotiation begins is with the letter of intent. And then once the contract comes in, maybe another round of negotiations or further clarifications. So what else would be negotiable in the sense of the contract? 
going in, I know every contract's different. Every specialty is different. Every practice versus academic, any hospital system, they're all different. But do you have any high level thoughts on what are the things that you have seen are typically more negotiable than others? Benefits for the most part are non-negotiable, right? We have our Blue Cross Blue Shield health insurance and it may have a delay as far as when it starts. We have a retirement plan. It's a 401k or a profit sharing plan. Here's the process. You, of course, know that better than anybody. So a lot of those benefits, those core benefits are non-negotiable. Vacation time, maybe. It depends on how large the employer is and if they have a formal policy with vacation time and how they allocate it to the physicians. And for the record, we don't see a lot of paid leave for shift workers or hourly-based workers. So emergency medicine docs, hospital trauma surgeons, it's like you get paid to show up and work. You don't get paid when you're not there. So we don't see a lot of benefits negotiable. Malpractice, as far as the type goes or the limits, may not be negotiable, but how tail is may be negotiable. It just depends on a variety of factors. And again, all of this is extended with how creative one can get during the negotiation process and what to ask for and how to ask for it. But I think malpractice can be negotiated in most situations. I think non-competes may be able to be negotiated in many situations. Compensation, again, it depends on how it's set up. So it might be that you can negotiate base salary. It might be you can't negotiate base salary. You can, you can negotiate the bonus threshold. It may mean that you can't negotiate either of those two, but you can negotiate a signing bonus or a stipend plan or a relocation amount. If you don't need relocation, you can reallocate it into a signing bonus. Maybe you can tease up the amount of CME dollars. Maybe you can go from five days to four days a week or negotiate call or negotiate your primary location is the main hospital versus any facility that they have. You might be able to, I talked to a gentleman today about intellectual property. He was a urologic surgeon and he had a couple of patents already and he thought he might develop and commercialize more. And the contract was very clear on who owns his intellectual property. So that became something that I think because of his frame, he might be able to negotiate that. I think there's so many things that are negotiable, but I think, which, and again, most of the things that are negotiable are the things that would impact the physician's life. It may not be the copy-paste language or legal language per se, but the things that would impact their life, their compensation, their schedule, their bonus, their signing dollars, et cetera, those types of things, not the copy-paste language. That's the exact same for everybody. Yeah, that makes sense. We've talked all last month all about student debt. And one of the perks that we've been seeing a lot of is adding student debt repayment into that. And if you're going for public service loan forgiveness, you might not want that. You might want it not to go to the servicer because that creates a whole nightmare. You might just want it in more pay. I've seen clients firsthand prior to them working with us and caused them to wake up was they signed a signing bonus. They started working at a place, ended up they didn't like it. They switched jobs and had to pay this massive 20, 30, 40, $50,000 back. And they're like, Wait, what? I didn't know I had to pay it back. They didn't know. And that's something that could be negotiable. Maybe it's not, but it couldn't hurt to try. Say, what if we, instead of getting rid of this two-year commitment that I've got to sign on, and instead of being all or nothing, maybe it's a month at a time, or maybe it's, Mm -hmm. no, this is just my signing bonus for coming here. You can negotiate those things. We've had physicians with $100,000 signing bonuses, and you had to pay the entire thing back in full, not forgiven monthly pay the entire thing back with accrued interest if you don't work there for, I can't remember what it was, at least four years. That's brutal. And she said, I would rather not have the 100,000 than to have the risk of paying all of it back. And so she chose not to take it. And I can't remember if there was something else she was supporting a spouse as they were going on to training in a year or two, but there was something else that caused her to say, I'll forego this $100,000 because I'd rather not take it and have a 
80% chance that I'm paying back 100,000 plus interest in three years. Well, those are things you might be able to negotiate saying, well, no, no interest. And it's going to be forgiven 148 versus all or nothing. Or it could have been, hey, I don't want any of this stipulation, but only give me 30 of the 100 or 50 of the 100. And that's it. Yeah. Instead of over four years, I'll take 50 over two. Or adding, and I don't have to pay it back if my spouse gets deployed, or I don't have to pay it back if you terminate me no cause, or if a death or disability happens, or if you don't renew me after a year, or don't offer partnership. I mean, yeah, there's all kinds of things that it's not just about it's 100000 or 50000 or it's four years or two years, all kinds of other caveats and asterisks that you can come if you have good ideas. So now that comes into play, because Taylor signed a non-negotiable contract with the Navy, right? So she's hired by the Department of Defense. We ain't negotiating with the government. That isn't how this works. But what about clauses or what about contracts that are deemed non-negotiable? How do people approach those? Oh, we take this question all the time. So I tell everybody, even if it's non-negotiable, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't understand. And so there's a big difference between negotiating, right? And I hear from some physicians, they'll call us and say, I really need to have you guys look at the agreement because the recruiter or the vice president or the service manager or the practice manager, whomever said, this is non-negotiable. So it's not negotiable. Do I even need to have those? Of course, because even if it's non-negotiable, you need to understand it. And even if we understand it, it doesn't mean that we don't have lots of questions. I love due diligence. And even if someone calls us and I can tell you many contracts that are non-negotiable, we review many of them the same over and over. And I can tell you, they're all the same page one through 20, and then exhibit A changes. You're a cardiologist, you're a pediatrician. You make 500,000, you make 200,000. But the rest of the body, the contract is true. It's standard. It's not changing. And if you say change it, or I'm not going to sign, they will tell you good luck. And so I get, there are things that are non-negotiable. And I get some people say, no, everything is negotiable. And maybe to some degree, but if you're the only pediatric pulmonologist in Iowa, maybe they'll modify a couple of things. But for the most part, a lot of contracts, maybe there are more about due diligence and asking good questions than they are about negotiating and request changes. But it doesn't mean that there are 50 questions or 100 questions. I reviewed a contract with some that had, it was for the most part, non-negotiable. 20 pages, a couple of exhibits. And at the end, I bet you a follow-up email that had 26 bullet points, 27 bullet points of questions. But again, I think having that discussion and having that clear expectation is super valuable for the physician, making sure it's a right fit for them and their family. Yeah. And sometimes if it's a smaller shop or a private practice and they had an attorney review it and that was, that was it, the attorney drafted, this is it. They don't want to go back and do one-offs for everyone because it's too hard to manage those things. They're trying to build a business and run a practice and do all that other stuff. I'm not saying it's a scapegoat, so to speak, of they have a practice to run, but they don't want to remember they told Bob one thing and Jan one thing and Bill the other thing. That's really hard just as a business owner. I know that we've got about eight employees now, seven, eight employees at Physician Wall Services. I have one contract. And if someone wanted to change it, I would say no, because I don't want to have to manage not only Casey and I are managing the teams, but I don't want to have to manage different contracts for different people and different things. Like, and I'm again, not a physician, but just relating it back to our business that we have a fixed flat fee. I don't have to remember that John pays me one thing and Amy pays me another. Everyone pays the same. So everything's really easy in that sense. And so there is some employers that are going to just take the staples easy button. They're just going to push it and go, hey, I would rather not hire you and not have to deal with the one-on-one stuff and remember and treat everything different. Everyone's got a whole separate deal. I'd rather just put everyone on the same thing. That's okay. 
Yeah, there's something to be said for internal equity, you know, and having across the board. But again, even if it's non-negotiable, understanding what to ask and how to ask is super, super important. Oh, yeah. Because physicians don't get trained on this stuff and they don't do it every day. So what are things that are above board? Is it, a, we could go on all day, is it above board to ask for a partnership's tax return to evaluate future partnership opportunity? Is it okay just to ask them, what do partners make? Is that even appropriate? Is it okay to say, what's my colleague surgeon make for RV rate? Is it $62 or is he or she making more or making less? that appropriate or not. And there's different ways that you can ask, make it sound nice and neat and soft. Well, not just physicians haven't been trained in this. A lot of people, even with MBAs, haven't gone through. This was an elective course. I loved it, but to take a negotiation course. So not even all the business people or people running the hospital systems that have gone through the business channel versus the MD or DO channel probably haven't even gone through a lot of negotiation. Now they maybe have done it with experience and over time, but this isn't just physicians that haven't been trained. And you mentioned asking questions and there's always one question that I always want to talk about. And it's how do I make more money? <laughs> so First, I love the question on, am I paid fairly, right? I said it in a very like Jerry Maguire way, but yes, like how do I get fairly compensated for the work that I'm doing in the time I'm sacrificing away from my family? Yeah. Again, maybe you say, look, I deserve to be compensated above other people in my department. And here's the reasons why, you know, if there's 10 pediatricians in the department and you're the only one that speaks Spanish, you know, I think it's appropriate that you're not paid the same. I do think it's appropriate that they pay you for your skill set. No difference than if you're a GI doc that can do ERCP or a cardiologist that can do stents. So we do see differences within the specialty, but even in our subspecialty, we see differences sometimes. So how do you ask? I think it's always good to understand their frame, right? So again, I think it all comes back to questions. So how does the employer set pay? Do they set it based on a data set, MGMA or Sullivan Cotter or a tri-blend? Do they set it based on you know, historical market? Do they set it based on their personal finances? Do they set it the same for everybody? So I think it's important to understand how they set it, number one, and then how often they revisit it. Do they revisit it every single year? Do they revisit it every other year, every third year? When was the last time they did? So for all, they're offering you uh, 400000 and they're going to re revamp the entire program inside of six months. What data are you going to use to look at that? I think it's important to understand how they're viewing it. Maybe they're using an old data set. I've seen organizations cherry pick MGMA on what data set they're going to use to pay their docs. We can use national all practice, or we're going to use West Coast data. If you're in California, you're going to use the West data set, which includes everything from Hawaii to Washington to Nevada to rural Idaho, or do you use the national data set? If you're in a town of 50,000, but it's in a metropolitan area of 4 million, do you use the under 50,000 or do you use the metro data set? So understanding how an employer may cut up a little bit and say, we've all, physicians are statisticians, right? We all know how you can manipulate statistics to say, this is what I want this stat to say. And employers are no different with how they look at compensation sometimes. So number one, understanding it. And then number two, understanding what's flexible, what's fluid, and then how do we get creative with it? So again, I always say asking a ton of questions and physicians are great at questions because they get trained on their algorithm on questions. Why are you in today? What's your pain level? 10 or two. I'm not a physician, so I'm not good at this, of course, but is your pain acute or is it chronic? Have you had this problem for three years or for three months? So they ask questions all the time and they're great at asking a question to get an answer to change the next question to change the next question. So they're great at algorithmic you know, question sessions. But I think having the same frame with compensation structures, I think is a very healthy thing to do. So a number one question is figuring out why they're getting to where they are. And then if anything in that discussion makes you feel like it's negotiable, I feel it's just fair to ask, right? 
because of X, Y, and Z. And again, they don't train physicians on being salespeople no more than they do to be business experts. But because of X, Y, and Z, I would like to request the following. I think having a frame from somebody like contract diagnostics is important. Look, I tell our physicians all the time, tell the employer, you're a doctor. You're not a contract person. So you called contract people and they said you should be paid this. What should you go tell them? That's a super soft way of, they're not even asking. They're just telling them what we said. And so they don't have to feel like they're being high maintenance or they're asking for something that they should. They're just passing on the thoughts of a firm onto the employer. So I think there's ways you can soften it up. I'll tell you what I don't like is taking a contract or a letter of intent and just crossing out the salary and writing your requested salary. in. I've seen that dramatically backfire on people and it is not appreciated by employers at all. And I think having that discussion to set it up to begin with, and then having that discussion on what would be fair, also knowing where they come from. So if they're starting at 300 and you want 500, I think asking for 500 is maybe a little bit arrogant, a little bit of a stretch. So finding something in the middle that, or just forgetting that job, it might not be appropriate to pay you what you feel you're worth. But I think there's a hundred ways to ask. And again, it can be about salary. It can be about bonus. It can be about future. Maybe you even take less money to become partner early. If they say partners are making 700,000 bucks a year and taking 12 weeks of vacation, maybe you're not so concerned about an extra 20,000 in your base salary. Maybe you take 50,000 less in your base salary, cut my base salary in half. I want to be a partner in one year versus two. So I think there's other ways to negotiate outside of my salary, but obviously compensation is super important to making sure that you're paid appropriately for the work is something that we could talk all day about and how call structure is in there and what happens if your colleagues leave, do you then take free call and... Maybe you're paid appropriately. If you're a surgeon, you're taking call one and four and you're being in calls baked into the agreement and you're paid 400 grand a year and you feel like that's appropriate, but a colleague leaves. And now instead of doing seven days of call a month, you're doing 10 or you're doing 12 and you're not getting paid. So again, you may feel it's appropriate today, but pending unforeseen, uncontrollable changes to the employer's headcount, if you will, that may change your call obligations, which opens up a whole nother discussion around call and how to negotiate that. But again, you may feel it's appropriate today, but it could dramatically change if you don't have other terms in the agreement that are set up appropriately. Yeah, this brings up kind of the points around you need to know what you're signing, right? Don't be a doctor and just sign at the bottom line. You know what you're signing. You ask a lot of questions. You feel comfortable about your situation, your circumstance, and you'll be able to feel out what's negotiable and not negotiable. But again, comes back to asking a lot of questions and making sure that you are very confident in the ability that you've analyzed the situation and that You've thought through all these processes. The call one is a great example. We've had several clients that have seen dwindling staff, let's say, in their ED or wherever it is, and they don't have any other option except for to take more shifts that they're not getting compensated even more money for because the system didn't have the ability to staff it. Someone had to step up and they feel like they're being walked on or mistreated and they just didn't look at the contract and nothing was explained that if this happened... And some are like, look, you could even pay me for it. I don't want to do it. Well, that probably needs to be communicated. And there's only so much that you can do. And there's some extra circumstances that you can't really control. But it comes back to asking questions, understanding what's in your contract, making sure you know what it is. What if someone, and this is likely almost everyone listening, already has their job. They've been working there two, five, 10 years, whatever it is. They maybe have never renegotiated a single thing. So they might feel like if I do that, it's like I'm being greedy or if I do that, it's coming out of the blue and not like me. Yeah, That's probably a good thing that it's not like you, that you should renegotiate because markets change and stats change and whatever is, is going on. Life changes around you. 
and maybe you've been getting these little raises or things like that, but they're probably going, okay, guys, that's great. If I was going to get a new job and I'll be this different person and I'll renegotiate all this and be a, a hard ass and all that. But what about now they're in their job? Do they renegotiate? Yeah. How do they renegotiate? When should they renegotiate? Let's talk about that piece and unpack that a little bit. So first off, I think employers expect it. And I think that some people maybe don't think that, but employers expect it. And I think when you take a job, if, again, if you're the physician that just signs a contract and moves on, that's, that becomes your brand, right? You're someone who will sign whatever, who maybe doesn't care, who just loves being a doctor or doesn't want to rock the boat. And so I think, again, coming in and setting up where I'm somebody who will ask a lot of questions. Hey, John, it's non-negotiable. That's okay. I have a thousand questions. I think just being, having that, that, that persona, that brand in my facility or in my practice that John cares and he's involved and he wants to ask good questions, I think is one thing. And, and again, if you've established that, then I think they'll expect you to come to them and say, hey, I know that my contract's coming up on my two-year renewal. I'd love to sit down and talk about the terms moving forward. When is a good time that we can get some time, right? Not in the middle of a hallway between patients or as you're scrubbing into a case, dedicated time where you can sit down with decision makers. And I think just understanding, again, it, making sure that you're getting reports, if you're getting RVU reports or collection reports, making sure that you understand that you're performing or you're not performing well. If you are picking up extra shifts, if you're getting good quality goals or good performance reviews from your supervisor, I think bring all those things to the table, almost again, as a sales pitch, just say, these are all the values that I'm bringing to the organization. I'm in the 65th percent production a quartile for the practice or for my specialty based on MGMA data or based on whatever data set you want to look at. I have never taken my vacation time and my patient might have seen 26 and a half patients a day and whatever the stats are that you can take up. You know, And because of that, I would like to move forward with a better RVU rate, instituting a quality bonus, having Friday afternoons off, having more administrative time, getting a nurse practitioner, getting some additional equipment for the OR that makes me more efficient, fill in the blank. But I think it doesn't always have to be about my salary. It can be about other things. Having that discussion, I think, is super healthy. Even if there aren't, even if it's just going to be a departmental compensation change every two years, and they're going to sit down with all the surgeons or all the pulmonologists and say, our new plan is, I still think it's important to sit down and talk about how you're doing and what feedback they have for you. And then I think knowing that you are going to have requests. And I think it needs to be to a decision maker. And I think, again, knowing what your value is, if you go in there being paid $43 in RVU, and the market's paying 51 in your area. If you do know that, it's super easy to say, look, I'm looking at data and the data shows that we should be paid at $51. Even if you're the only person speaking up for the department, is there a reason that we're paid less than the data shows? What could we do to get closer to this? Even if it's not this year, maybe we can work up to it in two years. There are major CMS changes coming up this July and hospitals are actively changing contracts to reflect some of the new RVU values that are different specialties. We have some fantastic blogs on our website that we're putting up this month in July. They're changing this stuff and administrators are going to be changing contracts. And I think it's super important that physicians understand that their RVU structures might be changing because of changes from CMS that administrators are worried they're going to start paying doctors too much for. So again, if you're involved, if you're engaged in the information coming out, you just don't show up and go to work every day and see your patients and come home and show up and you maybe you get a bonus and you don't know why it's $7,000 or why it's $12,600 or $72,900. I think being engaged is important, always asking good questions. And then I think if you are that person, the employer will expect 
you to ask for things. And I think you can do so in an appropriate fashion, knowing that there's lots of things that you can negotiate outside of, I want more money or I want a better RV rate, which again, I think is fantastic if people negotiate those things, but they can negotiate other things. They can negotiate retention bonuses. They can negotiate if you had four years of student loans at 20,000 a year and your contract's coming up at four years, it's appropriate to negotiate that to keep going for another four years. So again, I think there's lots of different ways that you can negotiate, but I would expect employers to expect it. And I think a quick email saying, I know I'm coming up on renewal. I'd love to sit down and talk about the renewal and my contract terms starts to open up that box. Yeah, I think this is all really good stuff. You have to remember the employer, though, obviously looks at their bottom line. And so they're not going to yeah. be like, hey, John, it's time to talk about how much more I can pay you and make less money. Mm-hmm. Right? That's not yeah. their motivation, unfortunately. So there's competing. And yep. they will wait for you. I've talked to yep. physicians who sat in a job for eight years and didn't have any raises. And they called us and they said, I don't know that I need to talk with you. I like my job, but I haven't had a raise in eight years. And we're thinking, oh my gosh, you know, and so to have that through a third party, whether it's having it, coaching the physician, not doing it themselves, those situations are unfortunate. And to your point, employers, most of them aren't sitting there waiting to call the doctors in and say, great news, we're going to give you a rate. So that's why it's up to the physician in a lot of circumstances to lead that, understand what data is out there, understand their market value and understand, you know, how they can go and make requests. Yep. You have to understand that the different drivers, right, are are present. They don't want to pay you more money because they make less money. That's okay as long as you understand that, right? And I love the part of maybe it's not all salary. Maybe there was some equipment or something that you needed or that the staff needed that's critical. You might be able to negotiate that as well. What you don't want to do, though, is to say, hey, John, love to have a meeting, right? You're the the person that's going to help. I'm going to negotiate with you. And I'm going to walk in and say, hey, now this is probably non-negotiable, but you don't want to start that way, right? Or, hey, I'd like to talk to you about my compensation. Is that negotiable? No. Like you don't talk through those things. It's, hey, I'd like to explore this. This is what I'm looking at. Here's the data sets I'm looking at. Here's what I'm thinking. What are your thoughts? You're not coming in going like. Open any questions, not yes or no. It's not, not yes or no's. And it's not slamming the door in your own face of saying, hey, this is probably not <laughs> negotiable, but like you've immediately made it super easy for them to say, you're right, it's not negotiable. What's your next thing? Oh, man. And that's when people freeze up and then their whole entire plan is thrown off because they asked the wrong initial question. Yeah, even if you need to write down stuff and you're like, look, there was a lot of things I want to go over. I had to write myself a little list so I didn't forget to talk about any of these things. Do you still have time? Is this now still a good time? Make sure they're not run out the door, do something or they're pressed for another meeting. Like you got to have it in a, I think, more calm, relaxed type environment. And don't be awkward about it. Just walk in, just, just be yourselves. Just ask some questions and, and be comfortable. But to that end, we get all the time. People say, well, can I email them? And I don't like the email because you send an email off and then sometimes you don't hear from them for two days. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, I upset them. And maybe they're just on vacation or maybe they're looking for answers to the questions you asked. Or you ask a question like, I'd love to have the salaries 200. You say, I'm requesting a salary of 220. And their answer is, do you email them back and say, okay, how about 215? Do you email them back and say, okay, how about 210? Do you email them back? Maybe you wrote, I'd like to request, I'd like to know what the average of the department is. Question one. Question two, can I please have 215? And and again, if you're saying the average of the department is 200, and that's what they write, 200 is what we pay everybody. And then can I have 215? Of course you can't because we pay everyone 200. I feel a dialogue. And I always tell the physician, think about diagnosing a patient through email. Think of how long it takes and think of, you know, you would, you would be able to go through the internal algorithm 
And it's no different with this stuff. It's not nearly as complicated, but it's really important. And so don't email them and then wait for their reply. Email them and say, hey, I am excited about this role or I'm excited about my future with the company or I've looked at the contract and I've got some questions. When can we talk? Get them a dedicated time. If they say, I don't know the answer, great. Who can I follow up with? And then after that call, email them. Hey, thank you so much for your time. We discussed A and you said B. We discussed C and you said D. You are going to check on D, E, and F. Please let me know if there's anything else you need from me or if I haven't captured anything correctly. I look forward to hearing from you and finalizing everything by Friday, by the 25th, by the middle of next month. So I do think that the way that it sounds is not an email. A lot of people want to send an email because it's simple. It takes the anxiety away of having the discussion. But oftentimes, I never feel it's the right way. Someone might write an email that asks a question, can I have 220? And they may reply back with the answer is no. So then do you reply to that email with, can I have 215 then or 210 or 205? So I think it's difficult at best. Plus, they may not reply to you for two days. And you may think that they're upset with you. Or they might be sick. They might be out. They might be looking for answers. So I think an email is super difficult to get everything captured. And I tell the physicians to look at talking through and diagnosing their patients through email. If you had to ask questions through email, then reply. It'd be super challenging, super difficult. And this is no different as we're trying to get answers. So I think what makes the most sense is an email to them saying, hey, I am super excited. I've had everything looked at and I have some questions. When can we talk? Get the person on the phone, might be the recruiter, might be the service line manager, the medical director, the CEO of the small hospital. Talk with him or her at a dedicated time when you're not rushing in the car, you're not running off to a case, they're not doing the same. And ask all your questions. To your point, have everything written out, very clear. If you're working for them, I love if you go into the office, sit there and talk with them and have a personal discussion. And then email them afterwards. Please let me know if I've missed anything. I look forward to wrapping this up sometime before the end of the month or by the 15th. They know you're excited. You've had a call with them. Showcase that you're excited. Ask them some great questions. Sent a documented email and follow-up that says, here's what we discussed. Let me know if I misheard you on anything. Here's your assignments. You're going to do these things and I will wait on you. I would like to have it shored up near. And then hopefully they reply on the timelines. They send you an updated contract and everything is great. But I think that's a much better process than I'll fire off an email when I have time maybe from my cell phone because I'm a busy physician and I won't say it right or I might spell something wrong. I might miss something. And then I get an email back that says, yes, no, yes, no. And then three answers are blank. And then how do we handle that? Even if a non-negotiable contract, we're not going to change a contract, but I'll tell you right now, we bring in locums if call gets before over one and three. It might not be in the contract saying you won't take call greater than one and three, but at least you got an email from the service line manager saying they'll bring in locums if it's going to get heavy call. That way, if they leave, you can show it to the next person. Look, we were told that we wouldn't have to do call. They bring in locums, which isn't the contract, but at least it's some kind of content. I love it. Those are all really good pieces. So if you are feeling maybe slightly overwhelmed now hearing all of the things that you could be doing and going, oh shoot, what am I going to do? You can reach out to John and his team. They're fantastic. They're our go-to resource for all this contract stuff, clearly, because we bought him on the entire month to talk through this stuff, but negotiating your contract or whether it's a brand new contract or you're already working is really important and you shouldn't just take it lightly. You shouldn't shoot off an email because you're going to get that one word or couple word response because that is typical that of a response you're going to get. Then you're going to have to just say, Link, can we have a meeting? So you might as well just start with, can we have a meeting? a lot easier. But John, for everyone maybe is now interested in trying to go, oh shoot, I probably am leaving some money on the table or hey, I need to renegotiate these points to get less call or whatever it may be. 
How can they reach out to you and your team? Yeah, we're contractdiagnostics.com. It's super simple to find us. There's all kinds of ways to interact with us on the site. They can set up a free 15-minute inquiry call. They could submit a questionnaire for our packages and process. They can call an 800 number. They can sign up for our free Thursday night discussion series where every other Thursday we just provide free content on the website. They can go there, sign up for a contract review. There's all kinds of great information on our blog around everything from contracts to CMS changes to all kinds of things on our blog. And we're really proud of that. We have a resource page that's coming with all kinds of free information and educational opportunities on there as well. We love to interact in any way, whether it's formally, we help them with a contract review, or whether it's we're just talking through with them and providing them free advice and guidance. They can do everything from interact with us on a free perspective to have a formal contract review looked at and advice to just purchasing compensation data and understanding what their fair market is. Yeah, we're here to help with anything we can relating to those types of things. Lots of good things you guys are doing and keep up the hard work and the good work that you're doing for everyone in our community. And thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, I appreciate you having me as always. Look forward to the next one. Of course. All right, so it's time for one of our new favorite segments, the financial malpractice segments. And I've got Kelly on, who's a tax manager with us at Physician Tax Advisors. Kelly, welcome onto the show for the first time. Hi, thanks. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it'll be super fun. So maybe not so much fun when you tell us the next story that you have for financial malpractice, but what do you have for us with respects to taxes that someone has committed some potential financial malpractice? Sure. So... This story is actually not one that I personally handled, but it's definitely going to provide a shock factor and a good learning experience for everyone. In this story, there was a married couple. They were legally married in the United States. They went to their tax preparer to have their taxes prepared, and they asked for them to file two separate returns. The husband was going to file head of household and claim the children. The wife was going to be filed as single. The preparer advised them, as she should have, that this was not legally acceptable when you are married and living in the same household. So living in the same household for the entire year and married, they only had two options. They could file jointly or they could file married filing separately. However, the taxpayer did not agree with this advice, decided to go out and prepare his own returns. He used these incorrect and unlawful filing statuses. Of course, not surprisingly, their returns got selected for audit. During the audit, the husband was less than cooperative in providing the required documentation. And so this case actually ended up going to court. In court, the husband was found guilty of both tax fraud because he knowingly filed his returns incorrectly. And I guess there's another kind of crime against not cooperating with an IRS audit. His sentence for these crimes was five years in jail. Whoa. Yes. That is crazy. Now, we all know tax fraud is bad, right? That's why when we talk to everyone in our community, when they're reaching out, potentially work with us on the tax side, it's really easy to say, we're going to do what's legally, we're going to not play in any of the gray areas, but we don't want to have you pay any extra money than you have to. But we don't also want to be committing tax fraud. So thankfully, you are not the preparer on this one. Good disclaimer up in the beginning. So for those that are not trying to commit tax fraud, but could accidentally make some mistakes, but what could we learn from this? Because people aren't going to generally go out and say, I'm going to commit tax fraud today. But what can we learn from this story? Right. So definitely, I think some of the big takeaways are if you have a educated tax preparer that is providing you with advice, to heed to that advice somewhat. If you don't have a tax preparer, please go out and at least educate yourself. Find the appropriate 
filing status for your certain situation. You can find the information on the IRS website if you need to, but listening to your tax preparer or educating yourself. And I think the other great big takeaway from this is knowing that if you are knowingly committing tax fraud, it can come with a hefty sentence that could cost you your freedom. And I'd say the last piece would be don't piss off the IRS agent that's actually on. That's probably a good one to, to start with as well. Yeah, I, I did not know that portion about not cooperating with an audit. So, yes, definitely. I mean, it makes sense. Otherwise, no one's excited to talk to you ever. No, they're not. You're right. Well, Kelly, thanks so much for coming on. We appreciate you and everything that you're doing at Physician Tax Advisors, as well as today's financial malpractice. Yes, thanks for having me. All right. Well, hopefully this has been really helpful for you going through the entire month here talking about contracts. Got a couple months now, we've had a whole dedicated topic to something and contracts is one of those things we haven't really talked that much on. And I think it's really good to bring in a a true expert. Uh, And that's what we've done here with John at Contract Diagnostics. So if he can help you out or his team can help you out in any way, if you have any questions, he does what we do at Physician Wall Services, just a free 15 minute consult. Say, hey, are we good to work together or not? Does this make sense? Is this a good fit? And I highly encourage you guys to take advantage of that because contracts are really tough. You're negotiating a lot of money. And I always joke and say, hey, this is an MBA contract, right? So make sure that you are going to, and the way I say that is if you're going to make $300,000 a year for 20 years, that's 6 million bucks. So get it reviewed by someone's an expert, get the data, make sure you feel comfortable, get coaching around negotiations, all sorts of good stuff. But hopefully this has been helpful please make sure that you subscribe to the show. Tell one other physician family about this show. Hopefully we can help them feel more confident around their personal finances, increase their financial acumen, and just overall combat burnout. One of the pieces about burnout that is usually occurring is around financials and your personal finances. So if we can take care of that, get your financial house in order, we're doing big strides to making sure that you all don't burn out. Thank you so much for being here again. And before we head out, want to give one more shout out to our sponsor, and that is CareCloud for today's episode. Don't let a bad billing process keep your hard-earned revenue. CareCloud's free revenue cycle assessment uncovers billing mistakes so you can see how to claim every last dollar. Super important for your financial health. So get your free assessment by visiting drpodcastnetwork.com slash carecloud. Like we always do, the link is in the description of the show you're listening to us in right now. All right, everyone, have a great week, and I will catch you on Friday. Cheers. This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.